Candid Climate Conversations with Abhid Palla. Hello and welcome to Candid Climate Conversations with Abhir, a series of podcasts on climate change, part of the Ramphal Dialogues. I'm your host Abhir and today I'm delighted to have with me Mr. Dasho Paljol Dolji, with whom I will be discussing climate change in Bhutan. Deputy Minister and Special Advisor to the National Environment Commission, Dasho Paljol J. Dolji, fondly referred to as Dasho Benji, is the founding president of the Bhutan Ecological Society. Dasho Benji served in various capacities in the Royal Government of Bhutan since 1966 and also established the Royal Society for Protection of Nature, Bhutan's first not-for-profit environmental organization in 1987. He's spearheaded the establishment of the Bhutan Trust Fund for Environmental Conservation. It's wonderful to have you with us, sir. Uh, good evening, Abir. Uh, thank you for having me. Good evening, listeners. I hope that I uh, enjoy what I have to share with you, and I hope it will be useful for you. So let me dive right into the questions. I was reading on Wikipedia because you're a famous individual. You've been sort of nicknamed as the godfather of conservation in in Bhutan. What's your journey been like? Because I've had the honor to interview a lot of key figures in the environmental space. And one question that I always ask my guests is, what is the human story behind that? How did your interest in environment and conservation come to be? Was it there from the start? How did you did you develop it in college? We'd love to know the journey behind it. Uh, Godfather of conservation in Bhutan—that's very flattering. But uh, I'm just good servant to my king. I was just lucky to be at the right place, right time, with the right educational background. I got into service with my king. Always been a favorite of his. I used to be a court jester. Used to make him laugh. But it all goes back to Darjeeling. to my mm-hmm. school north point at the popular called st joseph's college and the priest came up and said who wants to join the natural history society and all rascals we put our hands up because it was in town mm-hmm. it was a way to get out of boarding school it was also a way to interact with other students especially the convent girls and uh, i joined that i luckily excelled because i was a country boy and most of the other students colleagues with me they were all city boys who didn't care very much about wildlife and conservation and uh, when you do something and you're better than the others you take a little more interest isn't it absolutely one great influence still going home for our puja holidays mm-hmm. we take to the jaldapara game sanctuary also known as hulong lodge in near hashimara mm-hmm. and it was one of the finest game sanctuaries in the world and uh, i saw it being destroyed when i came back from england 1966 it was a ghost of its former self one of the things which i told his majesty was uh, we must never let this happen here in bhutan we must look after our nature mm-hmm. and in his majesty i found the perfect master someone who could relate with my ideas on conservation mm-hmm. and a strong influence to in my conservation work is mrs ann wright who is one of the founding fathers of the wwf india when i came back from my father had been assassinated in 64 i continued my friendship with ann and her husband bob and i've seen ann at work and she was a real true conservationist at work and all my work started out as being pro conservation you know and the things we wanted to start mm-hmm. so i couldn't do much during the third king's time but once i got the opportunity to be in the service as a daily companion to my king i was able to uh, get across a lot of my ideas and his majesty gave me so much political will and support to start all these 
activities, which I am now given tremendous credit and called the godfather of conservation. But really, it is my king who is the true father of the Torah. That's really, I mean, inspiring and humble because I obviously can't relate such a larger scheme of things. But for me, what you just said points towards the larger thing that you need to have companions. You need to have people who support you in your cause and in your efforts, whether it was your family, friends, like you spoke of, or whether it was the king. When you're working to address an issue as large as climate change or conservation, you need to have some sort of support, whether it's just moral support from your near and dear loved ones or whether it's political will and backing. And um, you mentioned the forest near West Bengal, which you thought was a ghost of its former self. And that perhaps was some sort of a turning point for you. So was that the first time when you realized that climate change is a major problem that can lead to very serious issues for us? Or was that back early in school when you were asked to join that society? Now, I'm going to go talk in retrospect because uh, current ambassador in New Delhi, General Vinangel, who was the mm-hmm. ADC to the king, he brought to my attention and said, you know, Tasha Benji, we thought you were a really nice, funny guy, but a little nuts because you were talking about climate change in the late 1970s. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, I really can't remember. I must have been drunk. <laughs> and he says, you probably were. Okay. So many of the things which I did, I don't promote alcoholism, but many of the things which I did and dreamt about and go, God, you know, were under the influence of alcohol. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So if I may ask you, I mean, you know, in the 1970s, what was it that sort of made you aware of climate change? Because oh, yeah. I'm not wrong, yeah, yeah. in the 1970s, we had NASA scientists and other scientists around the world who were trying to sort of convince their own parliaments and local governments to sort of become aware of the issue. So how did that happen the, for you? The first thing was, I think, in retrospect, the 1968 October mm-hmm. floods. We had five unprecedented days of solid rain caused havoc all over Bhutan. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was an unusual weather pattern. And the next important weather pattern, which I noticed, was on April 26, 1970 or 71, we had snow in Paro. It never snowed in April, mm-hmm. especially late April. And this caused the death of many number of yak herders, and many yaks, because they had all thought now spring is here, summer coming, they move all their yaks up to the mountains, and this weather pattern hit them, and there was this tragedy. This weather pattern change and a series of other weather pattern changes caused the up mountain people to plead to the Lake King. Mm-hmm. That, Look, ever since you allowed these foreigners to come to our mountains and climb, strange things have been happening. And uh, I think... Uh, these people are climbing and all these mountains are angering the mountain deities. So we would like your majesty to stop it. So the majesty said, this brings an income to the country. So take it to the parliament. And they took that to the National Assembly. And then virtually mountaineering was stopped as they named every uh, mountain peak in Bhutan was a abode of a deity. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a tremendous boon. I think because of that, Bhutan still has some of the highest uh, peaks in the world. So climate change, it was... Eshad and Gayum, who brought it to global attention at the Commonwealth meeting. Mm-hmm. And this climate change thing started gaining momentum from then there on. And I know that as a youth environmentalist, I face so many challenges in the work that I do, whether it's yeah. because of my age, because sometimes people don't take you seriously, or sometimes it's just the fact that people are resistant to change, right? 
but you have so many years of experience and i'm sure there were still some challenges that you faced so what were some of these challenges that you may have faced in addressing the whole climate crisis in bhutan specifically well for me uh, you know i had the solid political will and backing from my king so mm-hmm. i didn't face very many challenges i just signed a piece of paper and it was done i was the chief justice of the country mm-hmm. and whatever i signed my king backed it Somebody, somebody asked me, "What do you, I miss most?" And I said, "In the good old days, I said do, and it was done. And today, when I say do, they say do what? We have to take a legal opinion. We have to look at the constitution. We have to do mm. this much more difficult uh, today than it was in those days. Mm-hmm. And I was very, very lucky to have been in a position to be able to do things and get things done. Mm. But most importantly, what I wanted was scientific studies in Bhutan must be for Bhutanese." Mm. So I kicked out every foreigner who was doing research in Bhutan. This is a legacy which has been appreciated by many of my scientists in Bhutan and researchers who are doing wonderful work today. I mean, whether it's uh, conservation with reptiles, birds, avifauna, flora, all these activities are linked together to mm. climate change. No, I think that was a phenomenal idea because for me, I have this ambitious, uh, it's an aspiration that I sustained all the way from class one, even now, which is to become the prime minister of India. And that's a tough aspiration because, you know, I don't come from a political family and people believe that you need to have a lot of funding. And mind you, I'm not sort of, you know, started to even get into the political aspect of things. Right now, for me, my key focus is on environmental action. But my sort of driving factor has been that we have so many young people, my own friends, my own juniors in school, have this tendency that want to go abroad, we want to study there, we want to work there. And at the same time, we want to criticize the country we come from, mm-hmm. which is something which is very upsetting for me. There's two things. Either you leave and then you don't complain. Or if you complain, then you better well stay in the country and work for the country. Absolutely. You know? That's why I resonate so much with your views that it's very important to give only when you have the space to cultivate local scientists, to give them the space and freedom to conduct studies and do the research. That's only when there'll be enough incentive for them to stay as well. So I very deeply resonate with that point. Don't let your age, any criticism come in your way. You have a passion, develop that passion and serve your country. And this is what I think will also resonate that India needs. People who will serve their country, not rule, not boss, not bully, but serve. Exactly. And if you have your heart in the right place and your passion there and your determination, that alone will give you that platform to rise to the very top. And I wish you every success in that. Thank you so much. So that means a lot. But, you know, I'm really fascinated with all the work that you've done. And there is so much that I've read before this conversation. I want to ask you about the multiple sort of initiatives that you've taken over the years. Founded Bhutan's first environmental nonprofit called the Royal Society for the Protection of Nature. Could you tell us the story behind that? How did that happen? When did it happen? What was your inspiration behind that? Well, that took quite a few years. I was always impressed, uh, having studied in England, come back. And basically, I was serving a king. And I wanted to, my king should be the greatest king. And that in his service, that we should do all the right things in this world. Mm -hmm. And it just happened to me. I fired from the hip. It was conservation. And I hit bullseye. And I picked up on that. And then I said, we have to start Mm -hmm. a society to protect nature. 
It took a few years, mind you. He wasn't completely uh, sold to the idea straight away. But finally, I said, Your Majesty, things are changing in the world. We are not being represented properly. Other people are speaking for Bhutan. I think it's time we Bhutanese speak for ourselves. It was in those years when people found government opinions rather suspicious. So they'd mm-hmm. rather have an independent opinion from an what they call another society outside of government. They wanted a different opinion, which they could say, rely on and say, ah, governments normally lie, their figures are always cooked up. But here, if it's an independent body, you know, we can believe that. So, uh, yes, His Majesty permitted me to start the uh, Royal Society in 1985. Mm -hmm. 1987 is the year because that was when the RSPN got its royal charter. Mm-hmm. But I started it as a one-man show, shelling out from my own pocket. And the main first thing I wanted to do was get the kids, brainwash a generation of kids. So we started to have art and essay competitions. So tickets mm-hmm. and money, give them some worthwhile prizes. So I wanted these kids to pay attention to the nature around them and mm-hmm. then write about it and draw about it. So uh, in 1986, I met Dr. Bruce Bunting, who was vice president of WWF USA. And I saw him and I said, you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back. (laughs) And you and I can help each other. And then he also then gave me $3,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And uh, I opened doors for him in Bhutan. And between the two of us, we did a lot of good work in Bhutan. And uh, we started all the nature clubs and schools. And I hope that it has paid off. And I think it has It definitely seems to have. So important that our youth... They're the future leaders, that they realize these challenges yeah. and that they should realize that and become responsible for the big and not be irresponsible. Absolutely. You know, for me, I've had the opportunity and privilege to speak at a lot of these platforms nationally and internationally. And one message that I always give over there is that there's an intrinsic link between the youth and climate change. And that's because the people who are sitting in parliaments and governments around the world today, whether it's at the UN, whether it's our national parliaments, they will not be in parliament 20 years from now. And 20 years from now, it will be us and my generation who will be sitting in parliament. And we'll have to make decisions for a crisis that has had years in the making before us. So young people need to take an interest in climate action and they need to walk the talk. They can't just be talking like you said. So it's fascinating that your NGO had started out as a one-man mission has you know, been so successful in setting up so many clubs and societies in Bhutan, in schools. And I think that's inspired a lot of other NGOs as well. But other interesting thing which I was reading about was that in 1998, you were involved in uh, the drafting of the Middle Path, which was the country's first national environmental strategy. So could you elaborate about this and what was shared the sort of crux of the strategy and what its implications were? Did it work? Did it not work? All of that. Well, the National Environment Strategy, the work started in 1994. Firstly, I have to thank Danida, who is so important, who put in a, pumped in a lot of money to environment and building up our infrastructure and uh, human resources. And uh, they had an advisor, a chap called Morgan Bukhansen. He kept pushing me. And he got a young American chap. He must be quite famous now. His name is Kirk Talbot. And we got him together and we got in all the senior mid-level management in the country and took them to Paro and locked them up and said, right, we're going to discuss these fallen strategies, papers which have been asking you to write, And now we need a strategy. But you have to remember these strategies 
And all, all have a lifespan. They're only a step. And you have to prepare for the next step forward after that. If you don't, then it's a wonderful strategy paper, which we came up, the National Environment Strategy, called the middle path. You know, you have to give a little, take a little. Mm. And it's not always a win-win situation. Sometimes the environment loses, nature loses. Man must always win because the economic well-being of Tan is of paramount importance. So this strategy, it, it's a wonderful document. It, we came out with it. And it served its purpose. And we kept on saying it's got to change now. You know, this is now, once it served its purpose, it then becomes a stumbling block. Mm. Because times change, economic scenarios change, people change, people thinking change, your focuses of development and progress of the country changes. And once that change, and if your strategy is not in keeping with the change, it starts holding back because some of these hardcore chasters keep quoting that strategy and say, no, 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 the strategy says you can't do that. You says you can't do that. And that is wrong. You have to realize when you have to give way. Adaptation, yeah. Adaptation, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so just recently we came up with our new environment strategy, the middle part 2020. Okay. Mm-hmm. That took some time, but it made people realize that things can be a stumbling block. And one of the wonderful things that are happening in Bhutan is things like climate change, all the conservation issues, where during my time, it was a one-man show, no more. It's a teamwork. It's everybody in the government. There are institutions, there are the legislation, everything is in place to keep it going forward so that it has healthy forward journey. And I think that the beauty of this whole program and the beauty of this strategy rather is in the words itself. Middle path goes to show that, you know, we have so many environmentalists or even, you know, industrialists who are just advocating for their own point of view. Someone wants 100% protected environment. Someone wants 100% industrialized world. And honestly, neither of the two are possible in today's world. So the middle path actually just goes to show how everyone needs to reconcile their differences and sort of accept literally a middle path. You know, when we talk about climate change, it is social work, conservation or awareness building. And there's no monetary incentives involved. And you've been working on climate change for so long. So what is it that keeps you motivated to work towards this cause? My king, an inspiration from him. Mm-hmm. Because in the early days, he took that very tough decision, stop forestry, mm. stop immediate income and earning, short-term gains, and looked at the long-term future of the country. And once that is done, we have to make sure that that journey was worthwhile. I think I'm always inspired by my king. And it is under his guidance. And a lot of my crazy ideas, he would look and he'd say, why don't you just change it here and there? Maybe you could do that. And he would guide. Now, where we go for what keeps me motivated is that we can still do things. And Bhutan has played a role. And we have contributed greatly to global society Mm -hmm. with great sacrifice to our own economy. We are now lungs. Absolutely. That's a beautiful way to put it. It It may be a small contribution, but it's a very important contribution. You know, like you said, that initial investment, you know, making such a tough decision when the economy is struggling, when it's a country that's emerging at the international stage, that's a learning which countries, in my opinion, can even learn from even now. Because during the pandemic, internationally, almost all economies have taken a hit. 
And one argument which is emerging increasingly is over the past five, ten years, we had begun to scratch the surface, and there was a sense of realization that we need to put climate change as a priority on our agenda. But now, after the pandemic, my sense is that a lot of countries are again going back to that whole thing of okay, is it economy or is it environment? And when the economy has gone down because of the pandemic, we need to prioritize on that again. which in my opinion is wrong because you know there are scientists who are arguing that the pandemic may have emerged because of things such as active deforestation such due to factors of climate change and what i'm really getting at over here is the fact that even here countries can learn from bhutan's history in you know adopting a middle path because environmental conservation needs to go hand in hand it's just like installing a solar panel you put a solar panel five years maybe you know the cost is a lot but after those five years you're actually making money on it your insights on the royal society for the protection of nature were very interesting another sort of project that you spearheaded was the bhutan trust fund for environmental protection which if i'm not wrong was the first environmental trust which inspired so many others around the world so could you tell us a little more about that well, i had this crazy idea that uh, we need 200 million dollars to make bhutan's conservation independent because when you ask for money from the government money is always for schools for hospitals when it comes to nature there's no money for nature so i said we need and then i'll go around telling and everybody thought i was nuts everybody says you're mad and come down to 20 million i said no way we stick to 200 million fighter jet aircraft costs more than 200 million dollars to make You mean to say it's more important than something which God made? And anyway, uh, Dr. Bruce Bunting asked me to just uh, tell Ed Bass about your idea. So I told Ed Bass. Ed Bass is a Texas oil billionaire, and he said, "In the world, everybody's destroying their nature. Here, we're protecting it. We need the money. The World Bank only supports the bad guys. You know, people who've destroyed their rainforests. Here's money." But I said, "You know, we're the good guys who still kept our thing." When you cut down a forest, you destroy just not the forest. You destroy the biodiversity that existed in that forest, and you can replant the trees, but you can never put back the original biodiversity, biodiversity which once existed in that thing. That only God can do, and man mm-hmm. cannot play God. So we need this sort of funding to help us to protect and keep our conservation efforts going and independent. And finally, uh, Ed Bassett. Hmm, I like the idea, and Bruce Bunting said, "What a great idea!" Because he didn't like the idea. But anyway, WWF USA came up with the first one million dollar pledge, mm-hmm. and then the Austrian government came up with the second pledge of one million. But they never lived up to their pledge. But then all the other countries joined in. But they, it did help us to leverage. So we went around and got Denmark, Switzerland, Netherlands, Norway. It hasn't given us the money, but they've always, whenever they have spare money, they put in a half million dollars, and they all put together, and we got our twenty million. I think that's exactly the power of names and of collective action. Because if you get one famous name to do something, then you know that's when others want to get a piece of the cake and sort of support things. Today we have nearly seventy million. Wow! No. But we can make it two hundred million. But it's provided better leadership mm. and better ways to spend the money. And we can do better and spend it better and show the world what we're doing with this money. I'm sure we can raise the rest of the money and take it way past two hundred million. For sure, I think all it takes is relentless leadership and passion. You know, with the two of those, then I think things can happen. This again comes when your leader gives you political will and support. Sure. 
that trust fund would never have happened unless I had that political will and support. Mm-hmm. I think some of the craziest ideas are some of the most successful. I mean, that's what we've seen and heard, you know, for things such as the Apple computer and all these revolutionary breakthrough technologies as well. I think it's the outliers which are successful and leave their mark. But fantastic. Um, talking about where Bhutan stands today, what do you think are the two largest challenges that Bhutan faces from the environmental perspective? And what would you say are the ways to overcome them? Human greed. Everybody's eyes. Uh, even today, uh, as we sit down, I struggle and face detractors in Bhutan who feel that Bhutan has to cut all our forests. And there are some people lobbying for this very strongly. And I said, please, you're cutting down our future wealth. Don't do it. And luckily, we have sane leaders and a great king who will make sure that that doesn't happen. Thank God for him. Climate change, how has it affected Bhutan? What are we looking at? For many countries, I can see the downside of it for many of them. Bhutan is a small country, but with many climate zones from almost sea level, 150 meters, going right up to over 7,000 meters. Mm. So you've got a basis. And climate change affects all these areas differently, some in good ways, some in bad ways. Mm -hmm. But overall, I think in Bhutan, we are in a fairly decent manageable position. We're able to adapt, but we do need help if we are going to keep supporting our nature, our trees stay healthy, our forests stay healthy. We also need support because we are Mm -hmm. foregoing a lot of money from our forest wealth for the benefit of global communities. So we need help to make sure that this is managed properly and it doesn't come free. And you need to employ them well. You have to pay them well. Otherwise, if you don't make our wardens happy, they can also become, how to say, culprits Mm -hmm. by not doing their job properly. It's a very fluid situation. Multifaceted, yeah. Yeah. That's very true because there is precedent for this happening. I mean, recently, I'm suddenly blanking out of the country, but there was a South American country which actually demanded money from the EU that, okay, we won't cut our forests, but you should compensate us because we're a developing country and this is our way of doing things for climate change, which is where things such as the Global Carbon Incentive Fund and different sort of agreements between developing and developed countries comes in because the developed countries have exploited their resources mercilessly. And now it's the developing countries such as India and Bhutan, which are, you know, sort of being left to sort of, you know, deal with the challenges of the climate crisis even more. But, you know, one more question that I always ask anyone who I host on the podcast and something I definitely want to ask you because you've been working on this for so long, and your initial messaging also had to do with the youth involving them, making them aware of the issue. Yeah. What would be your one sort of message or your one piece of advice that you would give to people who are listening to this podcast, who are starting out in the field of environmental conservation, or even to young people in general? You know, what would be your one sort of takeaway or, or piece of advice to them? Find your passion mm-hmm. and follow it. And when you want to open doors, don't take no for an answer. People will always give you lots of excuses why this door should not be open. Mm-hmm. But you keep looking for the key. Keep looking for the key. Keep looking for the person who has the key. And when that door opens, you'll find many other things open up for you. Mm-hmm. I think it's very important that you follow that and that passion to serve. It's a very rare gift. And if you have it, utilize it. And I wish all of you the very best in your careers. 
Thank you. Passion. I think that's the key takeaway for all the young environmentalists there because passion is important in not just realizing what you're interested in, but it's also, and arguably more importantly, in sustaining it. So, well, folks, that was Benji Darji. Do follow our Instagram at the rate Candid Climate Conversations to stay updated with what's happening on the podcast. You can also find updates on the Ramphal Institute's LinkedIn and Facebook pages. That's all for now. Stay safe and stay tuned to Candid Climate Conversations with the Beard. Thank you very much. Thank you.